Again, welcome, welcome. If you want to grab your seat. This morning, we're actually going to continue now that we are kind of, I mean, Christmas time is coming on, Advent is closing, but this is still kind of an Advent weekend. Um, so we are, instead of staying in just a standalone for Advent, though, we are going to continue on in the book of John. So we're going to kind of pick up where we left off. We're in chapter 17 now, and I'm, I'm just so excited to, to jump into this and hopefully learn with you um, this morning as well. So let's read the word of the Lord. John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all who you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray before we jump into this morning. Father, thank you that that you are a God who hears us. Thank you that you have not left your people, that you've come back for us. We deserve none of your mercy. We deserve none of your grace that you've given, and yet you have. It is unsearchable. It is unfathomable. But God, you have done it, and we thank you for your goodness. So this morning, as we, as we dive into this text, Lord, would you help us to, to understand? Spirit, would you give us ears to hear and understand the word of God today. Help us to be more like Christ as we leave this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray all this and all God's people say, amen. So again, welcome. My name is Josh, and I, I get to serve on staff here, typically doing music and, and tech and stuff, though obviously it didn't look like it this morning. And I'm just so thankful that every now and then, a couple times a year, I get the chance to come and the honor to preach the word to you. So family, welcome, and if you're an unbeliever in the room, welcome. Thank you for just trusting us with your time and, and for just coming here and, and searching the claims of Christianity. A lot of this stuff might not make sense, and, and yet you came for some reason. So thank you. Thank you for trusting us with that, and we believe that there are no questions that are off limits. So come to a member, come to someone on staff and say, hey, w- what is this? What do you think about this? Why this? There's no question too big, too small. We believe that our God has the answers. So come, and thank you for coming. The prayer which Christ made for us, he's also made known to us, and being so great a master, not only what he said in discoursing to his disciples, but also what he said to the Father in praying for them, that is their edification, St. Augustine. In proportion as this prayer sounds plain and simple, it is in reality deep, rich, and wide, with that which none can fathom, Martin Luther. The chapter we have now begun is the most remarkable in the Bible. It stands alone, and there is nothing like it. J.C. Ryle. This passage is unparalleled in Scripture. It is unique among all the portions of Scriptures because it is a prayer of our Lord, the Son of God, to the Father, John MacArthur. 
So having now covered some of the church's most well-known thinkers and her pastors from about 354 AD to 2023, concerning the passage we're about to dive into, I feel confident I don't need a witty illustration to pique your interest into today's text. All of these fellow members of the bodies are in awe of this particular section of Scripture because in all of the Scriptures, there are very few prayers that we get from Jesus to the Father, and none so great in length as this. See, numerous times we have this, this account of Jesus intentionally making way to go out, get alone, and pray to the Father. Actually, there's a, let's just look at a snapshot this morning because there's, here's just a couple in Luke. Chapter 3, now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. Chapter 5, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Chapter 6, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Chapter 9, now it happened that he was praying alone. And in Matthew chapter 14, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. Then Jesus went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And in Mark chapter 1, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Chapter 6, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to, can you guess, pray. And this is not an exhaustive list found in the scriptures. So we see that Jesus did this so often, but so rarely do we actually get the words that Jesus speaks to the Father. I mean, they're so, and when we do get them, they're so very brief. So brief, in fact, let's look at them. Matthew 11, Jesus prays this prayer to the Father. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. That's about as long as that one will get. To, to his friend Lazarus. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. In the garden, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And of course, on the cross, as Jesus is dying, he prays to his Father and says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. These are the prayers that we get to see Jesus actually pray to the Father, that the Holy Spirit decided it was good to record for us to know. And though these are loaded with an incredible amount of insights, they're so very brief. And then we get to John chapter 17. And we're going to be there for a while now, and we see this prayer of Jesus to the Father for, hear this, 26 verses. Why all of a sudden now? It should pique our interest to see. They've been so brief all through the scriptures, and all of a sudden we have a whole chapter of Jesus praying to the Father. Today we're going to begin to read what I'm going to call the real Lord's Prayer. If I had to title this sermon, I would call it the true Lord's Prayer. I'm not talking about our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom. I'm not talking about that prayer but what we commonly refer to as the Lord's Prayer is a little misleading because it's actually just a prayer taught to us by our Lord. See, it is meant to teach us how to pray. It can't be the Lord's Prayer truly because the Lord can't pray that prayer. Why? 
because of the forgiveness of sins, of which Jesus has none. See, if Jesus has the need to pray for forgiveness like you and I, then we do not have a perfect sacrifice. We do not have a substitutionary atonement for our sins. But we see that Christ in resurrection shows us that he, in fact, was a perfect sacrifice. He, in fact, was pure and without sin. So that can't truly be the Lord's prayer. It is a prayer taught to us by our Lord for us. And similarly, but on the flip side, no one but Jesus can genuinely pray this true Lord's prayer that we're about to dive into today. So let's go back to verse 1 of chapter 17. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And I want to take this verse and split it into four different sections here and just say there's a posture of worship. There's the use of the word Father. He says the hour has come and says glorify your Son. So let's start with posture of worship. So this sentence shows that bodily gestures in prayer and in worship are not to be overlooked as without meaning. I know some of you just got uncomfortable. Sorry. I'm not really. See, throughout the scriptures, we see people prostrating their bodies. We see people bowing heads. We see people lifting hands and lifting eyes. We see people worshiping through weeping and sorrow, through rejoicing and dancing and shouts of joy. And here we see Jesus worshiping in prayer to the Father, and he in this moment decides that it is right for him to physically lift his eyes. So as he lifts his eyes to heaven, not because the Father is somehow spatially above him, um, but I like how one commentator put it. He said, it's more likely because the heavens above us is one of the clearest things that help us grasp in awe the vastness of God. So Jesus felt it was right to physically lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed to his Father. And some of you might say really quick, whoa, 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 hold on. What do you mean that Jesus worshiped God? Doesn't that make Jesus lesser somehow? And I would say to you, no, actually the exact opposite, because Jesus worships perfectly. A helpful quote um, to, to wrap my mind around this I came across a few years ago from John Piper, and he says, God is the most God-centered being in the universe. Hear that again. God is the most God-centered being in the universe. Because if he is not, then he is an idolater. God is first and foremost cared about his glory before all things. Jesus being God, worshiping the Father, is just showing us the relationship of the Trinity that they have had from eternity past, that the Father honors the Son and honors the Spirit, and they work in relationship perfectly. They honor and worship one another because God is the most God-centered being in the universe. Thank God for that. So we see through Jesus' examples that there are reverent and relational and right manners and gestures that we use when addressing our worship to God. And if we're being honest, I think what keeps you and I from expressing this worship outwardly is not this like deep, robust, inward sense of worship. I don't think that's it. It's not for me. 
But I think what it is, is actually because we're more concerned with our outward image and what others might actually think of us than we are with worshiping rightly. I think if we're honest, that's what's happening. I tell, I tell the band frequently, if the joy of the Lord is in your heart, let your face know about it, right? It sounds silly, but if the joy of the Lord is in our hearts, it's going to cause us to act. It's going to cause us to do something. Our bodies will physically, we're not just spiritual beings. We are spiritual and physical. So as you worship, worship outwardly as well. It is okay to move during music, lift your hands and shout praise joy. It's okay. Nobody's going to escort you out the building, I promise. I know it's been a fear of some of y'all lately. It's okay. It is right to worship outwardly. And I say all this with a deep desire that I want our body to grow in this. But I also want to clarify and not come across as like encouraging wrongly expressed or fake worship either. We don't want that either. John Calvin says all of this like this. He says, if we desire to imitate Christ, we must take care that our outward gestures do not express more than is in our mind. But that inward feeling shall direct the eyes, the hands, the tongue, and everything about us. So worship rightly inward and outward. But don't try to express what you're not storing away in your mind and in your heart. First, you need to be reading and memorizing scripture. We need to be praying and fasting and using all of the graces that help us better understand God. That needs to come first. So desire these graces, practice these graces, and express your worship outwardly in them. Okay, can we tell that the worship leader got to preach today? Okay, let's move on. Let's get to the part that says, Father. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father. See, this word occurs a hundred times in John's gospel. And six times in this chapter. Why did God choose a father and son relationship to give us this imagery between the relationship of the Godhead between these two? Why? Why father and son? I think for two main reasons. One, it's going to express a unique intimacy between the eternal son and the eternal father that they've had for eternity past. It is is an intimate relationship between the father and son. It continues before and after the incarnation. But I think most importantly we see here that because of the redemptive work of Jesus the son, believers in Christ can now speak of God as their father through the adoptive sonship that we have. If we are brothers with Christ, we are adopted, and now we have a father. So why is this? Because of our union and being hidden in Christ. I, I loved Blake's illustration a couple weeks ago. It stuck with me. It was so simple, and it's just, it's just helped me better see and understand this. He grabbed a quarter. He said, this is you and I. And he put it in his hand, and he covers it. He says, when you're hidden in Christ, when the father looks at you, what does he see? He sees Christ. Such simple imagery, but we are hidden in Christ. If we are hidden in Christ, then when the Father looks at us, he sees sons and he sees daughters that he loves. So because of our union, we are adopted into God's family and we too now have a perfect Father. And then he goes on, he says, the hour has come. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. 
Many times through the New Testament, we see Jesus saying to those around him, my time has come. My time has not come. My hour has not come. The hour is not here. All throughout the New Testament, we see him saying this, even at the beginning with his mom, the wedding feast. His woman, my, my time has not come. What does that have to do with me? There's even a fascinating account where Jesus is speaking to some demons, or more, more so the demons are speaking to him and says, and behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And there's another passage that says, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. We're going to get to Jesus' authority here in the next verse, but I love how Augustine put this in regards to the hour has not come. He says, Time did not force Christ to die, but Christ chose a time to die. I love that. And then to, to finish this verse, he says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. See, this last statement is Jesus proclaiming that he, the son, is equal to the father. What being could stand before God and say, glorify me? Who? Who could do that but God? He says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And this is also not unlike the prayer that we're going to hear in the garden soon. We can see Jesus' humanity full on display as well. Because this is also a prayer of saying, glorify your son. Saying, Father, would you carry me through the cross? Would you carry me through the grave? And ultimately, would you carry me into the completion of my work in resurrection and ascension? Glorify your son. And don't miss Jesus' perfect relationship with the Father, again, at the end of the phrase, because in humility, he asks to return to the glory that he has always had, but why? So that he may in turn glorify the Father. Glorify your Son. Why? So that the Son may glorify you. Verse 2. So that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you had given him. So here we see the authority of Christ. Remember back in the beginning of this letter in John. Why does Jesus have authority? Chapter 1, verse 2. He was in the, be- he was in the beginning with God. He was in the beginning. Jesus already was. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life. So we see, one, Jesus is uncreated. In him, all things came to be. And he is life itself. He is God. Jesus has authority because he is God. And the second part of this verse, to give eternal life to all who you have given him. This is the Father's sovereign choice in salvation. Jesus has authority over all flesh. Why? To give eternal life. To whom? To all whom the Father has given the Son. It is a predetermined event before the foundation of the world that your Father loved you and gave Jesus for you. Look at these verses with me, Ephesians uh, 1, 5 first. It says, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Romans 9, 11. Though they were not yet born... And had done nothing, either good or bad. 
in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. In Acts 13, 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. See, all are invited to repent and believe without distinction. But it's clear from the text that only those that are called by the Father will truly hear and believe these words. See, no one is warranted in saying, I wasn't given to Christ. I can't can't be saved. It's not my fault. All have sinned. None are worthy apart from Christ. Yet for unfathomable reasons, God still found it more glorifying to for some reason give mercy to some. I understand that this doctrine can feel weighty, maybe even a little anxiety-giving, but I think that with a right understanding of the scriptures, it is exactly the opposite. So hear these words, hear this. In God's complete sovereignty, together with his goodness, that is the only cure for our anxiety. God's complete sovereignty, together with his goodness, is the only cure for our anxiety. But how do I know? How do I know if I've been shown mercy? Commentator Matthew Poole says this about assurance of salvation. We need not ascend up to heaven to search the roles of the eternal councils, meaning I don't need to go look into the book of life, but all whom the Father has given to Christ shall come to Christ. And here's, here's the part. And not only receive him as priest, but give themselves up to be ruled and restored by him. By such a receiving of Christ, we shall know whether we are of the number that those that are given to Christ. So do you want assurance of salvation this morning? Well, how do you receive the rulings and the restorings of Jesus? When was the last time that Jesus disagreed with you and you submitted to him? Those in Christ will continue to grow throughout life and act more and more like the fullness of Christ, not just the parts of Christ that you like. This is your assurance. And as we speak about eternal life, it begs the question, well, what is eternal life? Well, luckily, verse 3, and this is eternal life. All right, thanks, God. That was good. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. See, my mind gets really overwhelmed when I try to sit and fathom eternity, and I think that's largely because I start to think of eternity as a, as a concept of time, when that's never how the scriptures portray eternity. How does it do it? It isn't spoken in the sense of time. In fact, constantly, we, we even comfortably speak about God as being eternal and outside of time. We say that comfortably, So the text seems to do so here again. What is eternal life? That they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So eternal life is not in an infinite amount of time. It is perfect knowledge of God in Christ. As one commentator puts, it is a quality of existence 
not a quantity of time. What are the terrifying words that Christ will speak to some on the last day? When men and women say, Lord, Lord, did we not do great things in your name? The Lord doesn't say, go, you didn't do enough. He doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, go, I never knew you. That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And there are two pitfalls here. The first one being this. Knowing God apart from Christ is not knowing God savingly. Knowing God apart from Christ is not knowing God savingly. It says that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And the second pitfall here is knowing things of God or about Christ isn't enough. Otherwise, Satan himself would arguably be the most secure in his salvation person if it was just about knowledge of God, right? So that can't be it. It can't just be knowing things of God. But he who rightly knows God through Christ is the one who possesses eternal life. And interestingly, this is the only place in all of the scriptures that Jesus refers to himself as Jesus Christ. Remember, this is Jesus praying, and it says that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He speaks as himself in the third person saying, Jesus Christ. Why? Jesus clearly states here to the Father and to all those around listening, Jesus saying, I am the Messiah. I am the anointed one, the man of sorrows, the son of man, the word, the holy one of Israel. I am the Christ. And in verse 4, he goes on and says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And Jesus, this is remarkable. Read this again and don't miss this. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work. That's a past tense. This is before the cross. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He is speaking as if, hey, the war is already won. And though it is not temporally at this moment in the story, it is as good as done, just as it has always been as good as done before the foundation of creation. There was never a plan B. Plan A was it, and it was going to work because God said it was. He said, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, perfect obedience. And verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus again asked the Father to be glorified once again. He affirms he's God once again, and he blatantly even tells us that his glory existed before the world existed. This signifies he is pre-existent. He is uncreated. He even refers to the kind of glory that he shares. He says, with the glory that I had with you. Who is you? The Father. Jesus has the same glory. He shares in the same glory as the Father. He is not holding anything back now. Right before the cross, Jesus is blatantly telling all of his followers and in his prayer to his Father, I am God. I have authority. I am just as worthy There's no hiding the secret anymore. The hour has come. So what do we do with all this? Well, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, decided that it was good 
for us to see just how much Jesus placed an emphasis on prayer. This should quickly make us think that if Jesus, the Son of God, apparently desired and needed prayer so often, how much more you and I? If Jesus in his flesh, the Son of God, so desperately needed to pray, how much more you and I? Live a life of prayer as if your life depended on it. Because from Jesus' example, it very well seems so that it does. Live a life of prayer. Second point, take heart that this is also how Jesus now prays for you in heaven. He's alive. He is unceasingly interceding for his people, for his bride, the church. And as we go through this chapter, we get to see the gift of Jesus praying and just how he's praying for us today. And lastly, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Our works are not decisive of our salvation. You're saved by grace through faith alone. But they are evidence of God's saving work in us. Faith without works is dead. Faith works through love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for um, the weight of your eternal glory that we see in this prayer. Thank, thank you that we know there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. You've, you've never had a plan B. You've always decided to save your people. God, you are merciful. You are good. Would you help us to see it this morning? As we struggle with, with weighty things, as we struggle through anxiety, as we struggle through a new year, God, with new um, opportunities, but also new fears, would you help us to trust you? Would you help us to know you are steadfast, nothing surprises you, and that you work all things together for good for those that are called according to your purpose? We thank you for that promise, God, and we know just as you were faithful through Jesus going to the cross and raising from the dead and ascending into heaven, just as you were faithful then, you will continue to be faithful today until he comes again. We love you, we praise you, and we pray all of this in Jesus, the Son of God's name, and all of God's people said, amen.